Hello, and welcome to the new episode of Right Now at the Writer's Colony. This is a podcast that connects you to writers of all genres and backgrounds. <clears throat> I'm your host, Joy Clark, marketing specialist and editor of Emerge Magazine at the Writer's Colony at Derry Hollow. The Writer's Colony at Derry Hollow is a writing residency whose mission is to provide uninterrupted writing time and space to writers of all backgrounds. We're located in the quaint, unique village of Eureka Springs, Arkansas. Today, I'm sharing a conversation with Deirdre Fagan. She's an award-winning author of the memoir, Find a Place for Me, Embracing Love and Life in the Face of Death, and a short story collection, The Grief Eater, and a chapbook of poetry, Have Love. Fagan holds a doctorate in humanistic studies, English and philosophy, and a master's in English from the University at Albany, S-U-N-Y, and a bachelor's in English from the University at Buffalo, and has taught university courses in writing and literature for over two decades. I hope you enjoyed this incredible conversation with one of my new favorite writers. Well, I want to say a big hello and welcome to Deirdre Fagan, who is joining us today for the Right Now podcast. Uh, hello, Deirdre. Hi, Joy. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I um, I know I've already sent you an email saying just how much I love your book. I don't think I told you I, I read it all in one sitting. I that's, And for me, that's a sign of how much, you know, I'm just really like pulled in and compelled by something. That's so wonderful to hear. I've heard that from a couple of people. <laughs> and then I've heard from others that the opening is so hard that they've had yes. to wait a little bit and come back <laughs> so yes I think one is what really pulled me in is it just wasn't you know I've, I've read a lot of grief uh sort of grief-centered memoirs and this was not like one I've read before and so I was really intrigued by the way that you opened the memoir and just by the style of writing and the unexpected humor which we'll talk about later but I think yeah, it immediately pulled me in and I just could not put it down. And, you know, of course was crying by the end, but really, <laughs> really moved and it was so worth it. So thank you so much, first and foremost, for, for writing this. Well, that's so wonderful to hear. I suppose the prologue taking place six months in also gives you a little breather at the beginning before it heads in. To the yes, yes, absolutely. So the first thing I would like uh, to hear from you is what made you decide to write Find a Place for Me? And uh, can you tell us a little bit about the process of creating this book? Yes, yeah, so I have sort of a, a, a longish story about why I wrote memoir in the first place, but I will I will shorten it up a little bit in the sense that I, in the 90s when memoir was booming, I fell in love with the genre. And at the time I was in graduate school studying literary criticism, but I 
decided I was going to write one one day. And of course, at the time, it was about something very different. It, I was in my mm-hmm. mid to late 20s when I made this decision. Um, and it was about uh, my adolescence and my upbringing and, and mm-hmm. some of those experiences. And then as way leads on to way, I finished graduate school. I got a tenure track job. Um, I started a family. I was trained in literary criticism, not creative writing. So my first mm. publications were in scholarship and I wrote scholarship for about a decade, uh, put out a book on Robert Frost. It's an encyclopedic volume. And um, throughout that process of writing and earning tenure and having children, I also lost the me- last members of my immediate birth family um, mm. in 2006. And I was 36 at the time. And that of course changed what I had in my mind as a concept of what a memoir <laughs> would be. Right. I kept living, right? So um, then five years after those losses, during those five years, I should back up a little bit and say I had started um, branching into creative writing uh, shortly after I lost my father and brother in 06. Mm-hmm. And I, I was working on short stories, uh, the collection, the grief eater um, came out in 2019. And some of those stories date back to early on. Then in 2011, my husband, Bob was diagnosed with ALS and we lost, which is amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. It's a motor neuron disease. And we lost him in 10 months. So clearly all writing and anything beyond caring for Bob, caring for our family, just Mm -hmm. keeping going forward was on hold. Um, When I lost him in 2012, I continued to not be able to write for quite a while. Um, But then as I began to, you know, live again fully, Mm -hmm. I left my position, took a new position, remarried. And it was a few years into that position. I said, wow, you know, I said I would write a memoir. It's going on almost 25 years. (laughs) (laughs) I've written lots of things, but I still haven't written a memoir. It's time for me to do this. And so I I was actually on a walk with my husband, Dave, and I said, well, I think it's time. You know, the kids have gotten a little older. Life is stabilized again. And I want to write the memoir. And then I said, so now the question is, what's this memoir going to look like? Because, you know, it's changed over time. And I decided it was, let's see, I was five, it was five years after losing Bob at this point when I decided I was going to write it. And I realized that some of my memories of that time were becoming less crisp. And Mm -hmm. I was very concerned about losing them. And I wanted to um, put them in writing. And so I said, you know, I think that's, that's got to be the first one. I need to write Mm -hmm. that one. And I wrote it, you know, for personal reasons, preserving memories, you know, memories for my children who have since grown, they were uh, four and nine when Bob died. Um, But also for very public reasons, the Mm -hmm. obvious one of raising awareness about ALS, but also about caregiving, also mm-hmm. about decisions we can make, um, the decisions that are in our control when we are faced with a terminal mm-hmm. illness, um, how we can die better and live better in general. Mm-hmm. Many people, Bob was a philosopher, many people said that Bob had literally taught them how to live well. And mm-hmm. you know that was part of 
his instruction in the classroom, but just how he chose to live his life outside of it long before he was ill. And then when he was ill, people said, Bob had always taught me how to live well, but he also taught me how to die well. And I mm -hmm. felt very much that way. I, I still feel that if I'm ever faced with the same decisions that Bob was, that I hope that I will rise to the occasion the way he did, because his mm -hmm. focus was on those he was leaving behind and making their lives better. And his mm -hmm. primary focus was me and the children. And, um, and that was the case from very early in his, what turned out to be self-diagnosis um, mm -hmm. before doctors had diagnosed him. Um, so in relation to the process, as you might imagine, sitting down to write, um, you know, it, I needed to be, it needed to be immersive. So I went to my first residency at the writer's colony and uh, summer of 2018. And then I went to a second in 2019. And then I also went to one in Maine at the Golden um, Apple Artist Residency. Mm -hmm. And it was those residencies that made it possible because when you're exploring deep memories and emotional ones, especially, mm -hmm. It's, it's hard to just write for an hour and then go make dinner or let the dog out or you know, right. do life things. And so the writer's colony, you know, was a way for me to do that. And my other residencies, um, the, the first draft was over 500 pages, oh. well beyond a querying <laughs> <laughs> for most writers. I mean, yes, large books get published, but it's uh, rare. Um, and so I really put in lots of backstory mm. and that kind of the editing process was, okay, I really have to decide what this book's about. And so yeah. I cut out a lot of um, earlier experiences with loss and grief and relationships mm. and things that I thought had framed the book to focus primarily on Bob and the mm -hmm. 10 months with just a little backstory. That that completely makes sense. And I, I mean, I can imagine too, it must, once you started writing it, did, was it a fast uh, writing process or did it take you some years to do the first initial draft? The, the draft, you know, came out pretty easily actually, but, mm -hmm. but I couldn't really work on it, as I said, at home. Right. If I total the time I, I drafted, it's under a month. Um, for the 500 pages. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I wrote quickly and, you know, a lot. And then when it, you know, then I stepped away as I do with all of my writing. And then when I headed back into it for editing, by then I had realized, look, you know, you're really going to be better off querying a book under 300 pages. A lot of mm. people don't want to bite this off. And so then, then the editing, I just became ruthless. You know, I went through and said, right. okay, what's really about Bob? What backstory is really necessary just for the Bob story? Mm. And so now, you know, I have a folder with a couple hundred other pages. Should anyone want it or no more? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe someday that will become another memoir. <laughs> yeah. I can I only hope. Scrap it. I just moved it over. So. <laughs> That's smart. You know, that's what everyone says to do is always hold on to those things you cut because you never know when you can repurpose them. Um, one thing I think that made this book so compelling to me and so, I mean, made it made me want to just keep turning the next page and keep reading more is the way it's structured. So you have it structured in these 
fairly short chapters that usually focus around one sort of central theme. So for example, you have a, a chapter called juicing, you have a chapter called moving furniture, um, and both of those, you know, they focus around those two things. And I, I really loved that because it took this thing that is so large and so heavy and made it easier to comprehend by using these small sections. So I, I wondered what made you decide to structure the book in this way? So that definitely happened during the editing process. So as I was, you know, pulling out anything that wasn't essentially this story, as I conceived of it, um, you know, after the drafting process, I cut an awful lot. And then as I would reduce it to those essential elements, I also was aware of pacing. I know in our modern world, you know, we're used to getting things quickly. And mm -hmm. so I thought the shorter chapters would keep readers going. Um, <laughs> for one thing, you know, you, there's, a, I think, I'm not sure there's a chapter over 10 pages. Mm -hmm. um, but I also thought it was modeling the, the, the speed of his illness, you know, the rapidity mm -hmm. of it. And so there was that element too, that we're moving forward. It's happening very quickly. Um, I debated on whether I would title the chapters actually. Um, I kind of went back and forth on that. And then I ended up deciding you know, it is a work of nonfiction and often mm -hmm. with, even though it's a memoir, often with nonfiction where there's also information, right, mm -hmm. that we're trying to retain, like about the illness, about caregiving, about, you know, making decisions about dying. It's helpful if you can find earlier chapters right. easily, you want to go back and reread a section, right? And so then I had to make decisions. I decided, yes, I think it would be helpful if, if readers could go back and have a sense of time. Um, by having those chapters titled. And then I just had to decide what belonged in an individual chapter and then what to title it. So, right. you know, I did end up deciding I, I wanted whatever the central focus was to become part of the chapter so it wouldn't be really abstract. And yeah. I also wanted that levity in there. I mean, you mentioned juicing. It's one of my yeah. favorite chapters. <laughs> and it's one of the, you know, moments of levity. And it's one of the ones I love to read at a, at a reading, yes. at a live reading, when people are, when I'm looking out at the audience, <laughs> they're so sullen. And I just think, but there's humor here. Let me tell you about the humor. Let me bring you in. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm glad you brought that up because... That was one of the things that really surprised me because this book does, as you said, it, it deals with illness and caretaking and grief and these topics we don't normally, uh, you know, I, in our sort of like a, a American <laughs> society, we don't usually bring humor to these topics. But the humor that you brought to this book made it all the more human to me and just really... I don't know, it made it all the more compelling and, and really brought the humanity uh, into the work. So I, I'm curious, though, to hear about how you see humor working in this book. So I completely agree with you that we don't tend to, as a culture, laugh about these topics, but I yeah. think it's really healthy to laugh. I mean, mm. it's a it's a wonderful coping mechanism. It's, you know, a release button. <laughs> yeah. um, it's a way to let go. It's, it's really important, but it's funny. Now, when I look at the back cover of the book that describes, you know, here's a, a death and dying memoir. And, and then it says, but it's surprisingly funny, which I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure for somebody flipping over the book in a bookstore is just what is going on with this book. 
Um, but you know, Bob and I had seen a lot of absurd things and, you know, mm. losing both of my family members suddenly we were absolutely devastated, but humor was part of our lives, you know, as quickly as we could make it. So it doesn't mean we were able to laugh immediately. We certainly were mm. not we weren't able to laugh immediately with Bob's diagnosis either, mm. but we were also aware that, you know, that's laughter is part of living and dying is part of living. And the more we can face things head on, address them and find ways to manage them that, you know, we're not sitting entirely in one space or the other, I think the healthier we are. So in other words, if you laugh all the time at, you know, devastation, then you're avoiding reality, right? You're not accepting reality. Um, But on the other hand, if you're completely dwelling in the sadness and devastation, you're also not living. Um, you know, you can't go forward, you can't survive it. And so I think we were both very conscious of that. And we were also just people who humor was a huge part of our relationship. And so it wasn't long before we both said, you know, that's how we're going to play this too. We're going to laugh mm-hmm. when we can laugh. Um, and as my mother-in-law, Bob's mom always says, she always says that her, her father said, you know, there's going to be plenty of times to cry. <laughs> and was right. Laugh when you can. Um, so there yes. was that. But, but Bob also, his approach to his illness was, I'm going to joke about it. And he actually sent out an email alert to friends and family saying, look, when you come to our house, we're going to laugh at this. And if mm-hmm. it makes you uncomfortable, um, maybe you shouldn't come yet. Maybe you shouldn't yeah. come to be ready to do that because that's how we're dealing. That's what we're going to do. And it was uncomfortable for some people and other people just got on board with us. Yeah. And so it's, I think it's a process for everyone, but for us, it was a really healthy process and we still laugh about things. In fact, um, my son's uh, girlfriend and her mother both read the book. And then my son reported to me that that uh, his girlfriend's mother read it before the girlfriend could and texted her daughter and said, it, you know, I don't want to ruin it for you, but Bob dies at the end. <laughs> oh. And I looked at my son and I said, tell them welcome to the family. <laughs> That was spot on. I said, if your father were still alive, he'd be hunched over laughing and yeah. he would love that joke. You know, so, the that is our lives. That is amazing. I mean, I know in in the losses I've had in my life, humor has also played a big role in coping. And for me, sometimes I think about it as a way of like taking some of the power away from the pain. Because if you can laugh about something, you know it. It doesn't take the pain away, but it takes away some of that power that it has over you. Yeah, it gives you some measure of control. And I think, you know, part of the discussion I hope the book opens up for people is we can't control certain things, right? But figuring out the aspects that we can control can be really meaningful mm-hmm. and um, life embracing and really uh, endorsing, you know, it really can scaffold us in all sorts of ways to have, to feel as though we have some measure of control, I think is really important and empowering. Yes, I completely agree. And really, I think the, the humor in the book, just like I said, it it adds to the, it adds and uh, adds to the layers of humanity that is being explored here and what it means to be human. So the book is, I I know I described it as generous, and that's the best word I can think of to describe it, because 
it is so generous in both the subject matter it explores and how it explores it. And I was just so grateful to you by the end of the book for being so honest in about so many facets of caregiving and of being with someone at the end of their life. I know grief can be a really personal thing to each one of us, uh, but in sharing your story, it really seemed to me that you were sharing your hope and will to survive and continue with life after this. So what I'm curious about is what have you hoped the response would be? How do you hope people receive this book? I hope that it can be um, cathartic for some people. Uh, I know that when I lost my family members, you know, self-help books weren't really helpful for me. Mm. Um mostly because I'd already lost two members of my family earlier in life. I'd had a lot of loss. I, you know, I had some sense of the process and my experience mm -hmm. with it, but I wanted to read about other people who were grieving, you know, mm -hmm. and who had lost people. I wanted a community of grievers, I like to say. And so that's, you know, the grief eater, my short story collection is, is a fictional kind of accounting of that. It's a, it's a, an assembly of characters are always all coping with grief in some way or another. So it's creating a community. I hope the book mm -hmm. creates a community for people, um, even though, you know, they're reading it independently from me, right. but that they feel some sense of community. Mm -hmm. And also that there's educational points for people who maybe haven't experienced these, these things mm -hmm. before. I think, um, I said after Bob was di diagnosed and I, you know, many months in when we had processed quite a bit, I said, if, if he were going to be with anyone, when this happened to him, I'm so glad it was with me. Mm. And I meant that beyond the love that we shared and the relationship we had, I meant it because I felt like I was in a better position to manage it than someone who hadn't had any loss before. Mm. Um, and, you know, on the one hand, having lost before, as you know, having read the book, I was even more devastated because I think mm. each each loss adds to the losses we've had before. Yeah. It starts to feel like a mountain is piling on you. On the other hand, knowing you've survived other losses helps you to imagine survival again. Yeah. And I think if you haven't had a loss before, it's much harder to imagine surviving it. Um, and and in that process, also being able to think um logically about decisions you have to make. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. You alluded to America being a death-denying culture. I completely mm. agree with that impression. Mm -hmm. I don't think we have enough conversations yeah. about death and dying. I don't think we know what our choices are. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think we know. You know, the first instinct is to, for example, call a funeral home because they're the experts. They can handle this. You know. Right. Um, and, and I had been through a process where the funeral home was called before I knew that the person had died and I felt oh. really rushed through my process. Um, when my father died, my, my late husband discovered him in our house deceased and, you know, called, he was mm -hmm. in a panic, he called 911, et cetera, et cetera. By the time I knew there was, you know, everybody had descended upon my house. Mm -hmm. So when Bob was dying, I, I said to the hospice workers, like, how soon do I have to call? Yeah. <laughs> what do I to do because really I wanted to slow the whole thing down not only for myself but for the kids and I don't even think we're aware that we have choices like that I would yeah. had I not been through the process before um or choices to deny certain health uh, you know um 
assistant, yes. you know, yeah. as Bob chose to, because he didn't want to um, extend the inevitable. And so I think informing society about some of those things is part of it, um, as well as ALS. Disability, I was very sensitive to disability before Bob was ill. You know, I have friends mm -hmm. who are disabled and I was sensitive to their experiences. However, it was very different actually trying to navigate the world with a person who had a yeah. disability. I became even more conscious, even more aware. And also the honesty in our marriage. I think a lot of relationships aren't as honest as ours mm. was. And so I also wanted to open up conversations about honesty and relationships of all kinds, um, mm -hmm. you know, with those are all around you who, who, you know, they're in your care or will be in your care or the relationships that you're just trying to sustain as healthy relationships. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the book being raw and honest. I, you know, those memoirs that I read back in the nineties, uh, Mary Carr, Frank McCord, mm -hmm. Maya Angelou, all, you know, all the advice I've read over the years was you can't write a memoir unless you're willing to be you know, completely naked in it. And mm -hmm. I think there's real truth to that. Readers are astute. They know what's going on. They don't, yeah. they don't connect with you if you seem like you're withholding information. Mm -hmm. um, so I really did bear all. And, you know, back to the humor a bit though, I also wanted some levity, just like there was in life. I wanted the book yeah. to, you know, mimic that, but also to give readers a chance to breathe, you know, it's a yeah. lot. To so yeah. Uh, no, that, that makes sense. And I mean, thank you so much for starting these conversations. I, you're, I think you're right on. I mean, I know that at least in the interactions I've had that our culture is fairly death averse, especially when you look at other cultures. And I think also the conversations about marriage and about talking about these things is so enlightening because yeah, it's not something that we, we really think about or have conversations ongoing about. So I still think a lot of, you know, when I think about relationships in America, I still think there's a notion of possession that's at yeah. the core of them. And I don't see love as possession. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, possession to me seems very selfish and narrow compared to the kind of love that, you know, it doesn't mean that you want your partner to be involved with somebody else, but it doesn't mm -hmm. mean it's about ownership. Yeah. Um, same with our children. You know, I, I see some people with relationships with their children where it seems like, you know, I own you, you do what I want you to do kind of thing. And, and I don't see healthy relationships through that lens. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. Well, for our last couple of questions, I, I want to change directions a little bit and, and talk uh, about your life as a writer now. Um, or, you know, in recent history. Uh, I So if I understand right, you've stayed at the Writers' Colony uh, at Dairy Hollow three times. Is that correct? And I'm, I'm realizing now it's four. Wow. <laughs> so I, I went twi twice for this book. And then in the last year, I was able to come twice. I was on a sabbatical. And I was able to come once, not in summer again, and, and once in fall and once in winter. And I worked on... The second memoir that's now in draft, the one that I intended to write decades mm -hmm. ago, I finally drafted. And I also worked on a poetry collection, which was my actual sabbatical project um, on sabbatical from my university teaching. And mm -hmm. that book has actually um, been accepted for publication and is forthcoming in fall 2023. Wow, incredible. 
Thank you. I'm excited about that. It's titled uh, Phantom Limbs, and it is a full collection of poetry. I published a chapbook of poetry um, in, actually, that was 2019, and the Grief Theater was 2020. So the chapbook was just 20 poems, and this is a full collection. So I can't remember wow. the exact amount, but maybe around 80. And yeah. So oh. I was working on those things. And I also was um, reviewing the the proof copies of yeah. Find a Place for Me. So I did a lot of work at the Writer's Colony. <laughs> oh, that's so exciting to hear. I And I can't wait to read that upcoming book. Um, so this is sort of a just a fun question, but do you have a favorite suite you've stayed in while you've been here? You know, I it's not Muse 4 anymore, but that's where this memoir was drafted. Yes. It's a cozy, tiny room with a beautiful view out the window. And I that one of the first trips, let's see, was it the very first one? I think it was my second one when I was finishing up the memoir. Um, I saw five owls that week. <gasps> And Yana said, I've never, at that point, she said, I've never seen an owl on a mirror all the time. And I, I said, I know it's very, you know, uncanny, especially because, it, you know, there's a lot of associations with owls as spirit yeah. animals and the dead and all of that. But I also had a robin that, that trip that kept coming to my window and tapping at it to communicate with me. <laughs> and, uh, so that was a really interesting one. Um, then I've stayed at the in the culinary suite once and the Maya Angelou suite. Mm. And I, I loved all of the stays. I think Muse 4 will always have its special place because of this book and because it's so tiny and cozy. Culinary suite was great. I could, you know, spread out. And this last time I was in the Maya Angelou suite and I have to say, it really grew on me. I also love yeah. that. So I just love all the spaces and I've encouraged so many writers to go and several have gone since I mentioned it to them. And, and, you know, I always say, well, tell me which sweets and I will yeah. tell you. Which ones. So, and Yana, of course, her cooking so wonderful. And I'm, oh, yes. it's so wonderful to have a hard writing day and know that you're going to walk in and you know, have a, a beautiful meal and wonderful mm -hmm. conversation with the other writers. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. I think that, that it does. Yana is one of the most special things about this place. So I'm really, uh, I'm really excited to hear that, you know, you've gotten so much um, community and writing time and everything from the Writers Colony at Dairy Hollow. So thank you for staying in touch with us. Oh, it's such a wonderful place. I have to say, you know, many writers residencies are really isolated, but you can feel isolated and you can hide out at the writers colony if you want, but its location in Eureka Springs is also wonderful because you can mm -hmm. walk to anything, you know, and, and that's unusual, I think, for a lot of writers residencies to, to feel like you're in kind of country isolation while at the same time, having access to things. I actually brought my family back last spring because I'd oh. been there four times and I said, you have to come see where I go all the time. <laughs> so we could break with our children to introduce them to Eureka Springs. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> so. Oh, well, I'm hoping that you have many more visits in store. <laughs> And thank you again so much for joining us today. This has been such a lovely conversation and I will be recommending your books to everyone now. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I so appreciate the Writer's Colony and I so appreciate you are inviting me on. Of course. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Right Now at the Writer's Colony. 
If you'd like to join the Right Now Book Club and read along with us for our next book club pick, just follow us on social media and we'll be announcing that soon. The Writer's Colony at Dairy Hollow has a presence on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. And you can find easy links to all of those on our website at thewriterscolony.org.